0: Well, if you grew up in church, and maybe even if you didn't, you probably know a children's Sunday school song called Jesus Loves Me, right? The song goes, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. What you may not know is that these words were never intended to be a song. They were originally written by a woman named Anna Warner um, as a poem to be included in a novel that she was writing. And a few years later, in 1861, a man named William Bradbury uh, composed music and he turned the poem uh, into the song that we now sing. And for many years, this was a very uh, favorite song among missionaries. In fact, uh, the song wasn't even at first called Jesus Loves Me. For a number of decades, it was simply known by uh, the the, the name China because it was uh, sung uh, very much among missionaries in Asia. And of course, if you know it, you know that it's a very simple song. And we also have many hymns that may express uh, the truths about the love of God more profoundly, but there is something deep and something rich and something profound, isn't there, about just singing "Jesus loves me," and about just asserting, "For the Bible tells me so." Karl Barth, who many consider to be the most influential theologian of the 20th century, was once asked in a a very academic setting. Uh, Uh, how he would summarize this theology. I think the answer he gave surprised the people who heard because he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Today we're studying in our study of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, and we are going to be looking at God's love, and specifically we're going to be seeing how uh, God's love connects to what we talked about last week, how peace with God gives us hope in suffering. And if you were here, you may remember that we ended last week with Paul talking about how God's uh, has love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, in verses 6 through 11, Paul takes uh, this discussion of God's love and of suffering and of hope, he just takes it to a whole nother level. And what Paul is going to do, as you'll see in these verses, is going to connect God's love for us with Christ's death For us, so that we not only understand our salvation, but we also see how God's love really helps us in the midst of suffering. See, if hard things come into our lives, how do we know that God really loves us? How do you know in your life that God will keep on loving you? And how do you know when you get to the end of your life? on that day when you stand before him, that he will love you eternally. You see, what Paul is going to tell us is this. If God gave us his son and if Jesus, his son, died for our sins, in other words, if God has loved us like this, then surely he will love us in suffering. Then surely he will give us the hope we need in the midst of difficulty. Then surely he will save us and surely he will keep us and surely He will cover us with the blood of His Son, Jesus, even on that great day of judgment. Now, these verses are amazing. If you are here last week, you may remember I said those verses were amazing too, because they were, and these are. And these verses are amazing because they are displaying for us God's love in its richness, in its beauty, and its depth. It is a, a love like no other. So I want us to work through these verses, and uh, as your Bibles are open, or as it were, as they're turned on, if you'll follow along, you will see uh, three realities of God's love, and I want us to see how they relate to our lives, particularly in this matter of suffering. And if you're taking notes uh, on the app, you can write this down. The first reality is this, this love that is like no other, it is a love that rescues sinners. Listen to verses 6 through 8. Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul starts out by telling us that the essence of the beauty of God's love is the way that God treats those who don't deserve his love. In other words, we know what God's love is like when we see how God comes to the rescue of helpless sinners. Paul, he begins describing God's love actually in verse 6 by talking about us, by showing us who we are apart from Jesus. And he uses two particular words in verse 6, weak and ungodly. And and these two words, they, they highlight for us really how bad, how sinful human beings are And Paul's point is to show us that that God loves people who need spiritual rescue. And one of the key things that he shows us here is that, that God always loves people before. You might write that word down. God loves people before. He loves people before they stop their rebelling. God rescues sinners. In other words, God rescues sinners in their sin. Let's look at those two words that help us see this. In the Bible, this word weak is uh, sometimes used to refer just to physical weakness or maybe to refer to sickness. But in this context, what it's talking about is spiritual weakness. And the literal meaning of this Greek word is without strength. And so the idea here is that we're spiritually weak, that we have no strength. Maybe you have the New American Standard Bible. If you do, it translates this word helpless. If you have the NIV, It translates it powerless. And I actually think while we were still powerless is maybe the most apt uh, translation. Powerless to do what? Well, powerless to save ourselves. And Paul's point is this. Human beings are are spiritually incapable of being in a right relationship with God in their own strength. If you go over to Ephesians chapter 2, the first verse, he uses another word to talk about this. The word he uses there is dead. He says, and we were dead in our transgressions and sins. In other words, apart from Jesus, we are all physically alive but spiritually dead. We have a will, yes. We have desires, yes. We have things we want to do, but we are naturally and continually always set on the wrong path. We want the wrong things. We do the wrong things. And it is in this context that God loves us. And we need to see this if we're going to understand and appreciate how much God loves us. We have to see that God set his love on us through the death of Jesus Christ before this word, before we had any desire or any love for God. That's when he did it. God loved us first. God loved us before we turned to him. He loved us before we acknowledged his rule in our lives. He loved us before we repented of our sins. Listen, God sought you and loved you before you ever even thought about him, before you even repented. Now, the other word that Paul uses here is this word ungodly. He says that Christ loved us while we were still weak, and then he says Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, This is a word the New Testament uses often to describe a life that is oriented away from God, that is oriented against God. It's describing a life really that shows contempt for God, that minimizes the things of God, that doesn't really care about who God is and what God wants. It's a a life that is about more than just the actual sins we may commit. Ungodliness is more about a state of mind. That's why I use the word oriented. It's about how we look at the world. And and maybe you've noticed this. The Bible, we've seen it in Romans a couple of times, uh, often makes a distinction between these words ungodliness and unrighteousness. Uh, back in the, the first few uh, weeks of our study in Romans 1, we saw an example of this very uh, important verse. Romans 1 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, unrighteousness um, and ungodliness are not the same. As I said, ungodliness is the orientation of our hearts and un righteousness is the way we express our hearts how we live our hearts out in the real world and i I, i've been saying this repeatedly through our study what paul was establishing in that section romans 118 all the way uh, to romans 320 is that the human problem is not just that we do bad things The human problem fundamentally is the orientation of our hearts and the orientation of our minds. We don't seek God. We don't want God. We don't love God. We don't care about God's glory. We only want our glory. That's who we are apart from Jesus. And that's what Paul is telling us is true about us here when God sets his love on us. That's who we are when God sets loved us. He says that God sets his love on those who would never seek him, on those whose heart's orientation are always opposed to God. And and he says this is the way we are from birth. This is just who we are apart from God. A few years ago, someone who teaches kindergarten Sunday school class uh, was getting ready for the lesson, was asked by her husband uh, what the lesson was going to be that day. And she said to her husband, well, it's going to be about the fact that, um, that all children are sinners. And he said to her, he said, well, how's that going to go? And she said, well, it's going to be hard. Because most kids, when I ask them, are you a sinner? will answer, no, but my brother is. <laughs> like, what is that? Well, That's just humanity, right? That's just who we are. That's just all of us. We assume just like those kids that we are righteous, that we are pretty good. It's those other people really that are the problem, right? And see, what we don't understand uh, when we don't see who we are as fallen human beings, our helpless and our hopeless and our powerless condition, if we don't get that, then we cannot understand the beauty of God's love. And that's what Paul is trying to call us to see. He says we're ungodly. We, we don't desire uh, God's rule and reign. We actively resist God. We naturally dislike God's glory, and we love our glory and we're powerless to do anything about it. If you get what Paul is saying here, this description should actually make us tremble. Because our powerlessness and ungodliness show our hopelessness in and of ourselves. We, we can't do anything about it. But here's what's so beautiful about what Paul is telling us. God can do something about it. And God does do something about it, and God has done something about it. God loves us in our sin. He loves us in our weakness. He loves us in our ungodliness. He pursues you before you ever even thought of pursuing him. That is this love, like no other. I I don't know if you noticed in this passage today how often the word while is used. Did you see it? Verse 6 says, While we were still weak. Go down to verse 8. It says, while we were still sinners. We're going to talk about this in a few moments when we get there. Uh, Verse 10 says, while we were enemies. And by the way, while I'm talking about this, uh, verse 8, Romans 5, verse 8 is our memory verse. If you're doing this, chasing this challenge with us, uh, our memory verse for chapter 5, you can start working on that. But this word while is telling us something. It tells us that God's love comes to us, you know, before we ever care about him when we're weak when we're ungodly when we have no spiritual power when our hearts are set against god notice in verse 10 what it's talking about there we're not even neutral to god a lot of people think i'm just neutral to god the bible says no jesus says you're either for me or against me right and the bible says if you think you're neutral no you're an enemy and that's when god's love comes to us god's love comes to sinners God's love comes to people who are powerless. This is the essence of God's grace. We're God's enemies, but God loves us anyway. I want you to notice what's more. This love came, verse 6, at the right time. And this means that God had it perfectly timed in history according to his, his sovereign plan, but it also means he had it perfectly timed in your life. The circumstances surrounding that moment, do you remember it when you first heard and you understood and you responded to the gospel? Maybe even today, all that was never an accident. See, if you're a follower of Jesus right now, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? There was this time when you'd heard the gospel and maybe you'd heard it more than once, but on one day suddenly suddenly, It made sense your heart opened up and your mind opened up and what I'm telling you is that did not happen by accident God was orchestrating all of these events he was pursuing you and loving you and calling you to himself and and it may be that today you're here you're not a follower of Jesus And maybe you're here today because you're trying to to just figure out, you know, what life is all about. You've got questions you're asking, and I want to tell you today, you're not here by accident. It's like, why am I preaching on this passage today, and you're here today, and, and you're where you are right now? You know why? The Bible tells us it's because God is in charge of everything, and he orchestrates everything that happens, and it may be that today. He is drawing you and he's calling you and he's telling you how much he loves you and how much he wants you to be his child, wants you to be in his family. He wants you to put your faith in his son. It may be that today God is rescuing another sinner. Oh, I hope so. I hope it's you. See God is so relentless. The Bible tells us in his love for sinners that there is nothing accidental, nothing left to chance. I mean, just think about the significance of these two phrases. Christ died for the ungodly, verse 6. And while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus died. We've talked about this repeatedly as we've gone through Romans. He died as a substitute for us. He died in our place. And that means he died for the sins of those who had not yet surrendered. That means that he died uh, and made atonement for those who were not yet repentant. That means that he died for his enemies. Just think about that. Notice how unusual it is. Paul begins to explore this in verse seven. He says, "For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die what 's Paul saying? well he 's just saying what's pretty obvious. we all get it. sometimes it happens it's rare, but sometimes a, a a heroic person will sacrifice himself for someone they love, like a heroic soldier saving his buddy or a mother giving her life for his child but who in the world would die for their enemy? Who dies for people who hate them? And Paul's answer is, God does. God does. And that single reality that God dies for and rescues sinners in their sins, do you see it? It changes everything. It changes When you grasp it, how you see the world, everything in the world. Now, Paul's primary focus here in this context is it changes how you see suffering. You say, well, how does that connect? Well, it connects like this. If God has loved us in the death of his son, and if he has rescued us in our sinfulness, then when hard things come into our lives and when we wonder how those hard things could ever be love, we go back to the beauty of God's love what he has done for us in rescuing us while we were still sinners and we remind ourselves God has rescued me in my sinfulness and that means surely that what I'm going through now must be part of his good plan for my life because I know he loves me that's what it means when you're suffering see it means that the same God who pursued you and called you who sovereignly orchestrated all the events of your life to bring you to his son is still sovereignly orchestrating all the events of your life i mean think about it do you think that god would orchestrate all the events that cause you to come to christ and then let the rest of your life go to chance like let's just get him saved and then let's just see how the rest of it works out of course not. No, that's never going to happen. And, and we need to think of this. The reality is we know it. We're all going to suffer. And I think we all recognize when we suffer thoughts, certain thoughts, they come into our minds, right? We begin to wonder in suffering, in pain, how in the world am I going to make it through this? And as we get older, the more we realize, the more we get older, we, we just know I, I can't make it through this on my own. And so the question is going to come, what's my hope of being able to make it through this? And Paul's answer is, your hope is not in you. Your hope is that the God who set his love on you and called you and saved you is never going to stop loving you until he takes you all the way to the end. That's your hope. And that's the point of this passage. You see, The love of God, this love like no other, it just changes everything. This love means that you can come to Jesus today just the way you are right now. Some of you need to hear this, but here's the truth. You don't clean up to come to Jesus, you give up to come to Jesus And once you have tasted that, this sweet and undeserved grace, it begins to change how you see yourself because it will humble you. It it will create a heart of worship in your soul. It will begin to make it unthinkable for you to glory in yourself when the glorious God has rescued you, a sinner, in your sin here's more good news some of you here today really need to hear it because it means when you blow it you have not surprised god he loves not only to rescue sinners once but also to welcome rescued sinners back and when you fail and you will who failed this week you don't need to raise your hands It's a rhetorical question this time, but who failed this week? Pretty much every one of us. That's what someone in the 9 o'clock service said. We all did. And when you fail this week, when you look at God and you realize you do not measure up, knowing this gives you reassurance and comfort because you know it was God who loved you and God who saved you and God who promises to keep you to the very end. Here's something else it means. It means that when we see people who don't know yet what we have come to know by God's grace, the love of God. It means that we are reached out, uh, moved to reach out to people before they clean their lives up. Because we want to do it like God did it to us. We want to see sinners rescued. We want to do whatever it takes. We want to help them through our actions and our words, through our time and through our money. We want them to come to God. We'll do everything we can as a part of the family of God. And we'll do this because God has done it for us. When God has loved us like this, when rescued us like this, we want to do it for others too. Amen? God's love rescues sinners. And then second, this love like no other, Paul says, is a love that brings reconciliation. This is in verses 9 and 10. And this is the second thing we see. God's love just creates a new relationship between God and us. Now, Paul is here building on what he's just said in verses 6 through 8, but here's how he's doing it. He's showing us the beauty of God's grace in a more personal way by focusing on reconciliation. Kind of a contrast to what's come before earlier in the chapter. This is not now in verses 9 and 10 a, a legal argument about our standing before God. If you look back to the beginning of the chapter, justified by faith, legal standing. Access by faith into this grace, legal standing but reconciliation, by definition, is personal. It's, it's intimate. God rescued sinners to bring them to himself, into his family, into his heart. And Paul, again, in the context is saying, how do we know we will be saved in the end? How do we know that God will always keep his promises to us? And his answer here is we have been loved and we have been reconciled. To God. And kind of hear the turn in the thinking happening in verse 9 where Paul says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. It's the same thing he's been saying to us. Uh, chapter 3 verse 24, justified through redemption. Uh, chapter 5 verse 1, justification through faith. And now it's justification through his blood. He's connecting to the Old Testament concept, the sacrificial model where people got right with God, sinners brought near to God, and it only happened when there was death, when there was blood that was shed. Reconciliation was only possible, Paul's reminding us, because of death. He says next, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God and Uh, This is an interesting note. You might be surprised to understand this is the first use in Romans of this word saved. So what are we saved from? Well, Paul is going to tell us that people who are justified by faith are saved from something and saved to something. And first of all, we're saved, he points out, from God's wrath. Now, again, last week we, we talked about how we have peace with God because we've been justified. And, and we tend to think of this in terms of being saved from our sins. And that is true, but it's not all. Ultimately, the reason we're at peace with God is that the wrath of God has been satisfied. We're not His enemies anymore. Now we're at peace. His wrath has been satisfied. And again, the the beauty of God's love and redemption is not just that we're saved from our sins. It's also that we are actually saved from a holy God in our sins. Maybe you've never thought about that. One uh, commentator on Romans puts it like this. The ultimate threat confronting sinners is neither sin itself, nor the power of Satan, nor even death, but the wrath. Of God. See, we don't think like that these days. A lot of us don't even want to consider the teaching of the Bible that God is a God of wrath. But maybe you need to consider it if you never have before. Listen to this. There is nothing more dangerous in all the universe than to be standing before a holy God as an unredeemed sinner, this holy God before whom there's no need for testimony. You don't need to say anything. You don't need an attorney to argue your case. There's nothing you can say, in fact, because God already knows it all. He knows all your sin. He knows every act. He knows every word. He knows every thought. Imagine the terror of knowing that this God who sees you like this, has the power either to save you or condemn you. You see, there is, when you understand it, nothing more dangerous than sovereign and omnipotent and holy justice that is being poured out on deserving rebels. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I wonder if One day in eternity that our experience of the new heaven and the new earth will not only include the infinite joy of experiencing God's beauty and God's grace and God's love forever and ever, but also the joy of knowing what you were rescued from. Ever had a moment like that? We call them close calls. Some of you have told me about times you've been in an auto accident and stuff happens and it just comes at you and you're things are going around you and you make it through and on the other side you look at it and you ask yourself how did I make it through and you think to yourself I might have died maybe you've been somewhere where you're on a height and you're coming close to an edge out in I don't know maybe a hike a wilderness or maybe at the top of a building and you came to this moment and you almost fell you did it but you know if I had fallen I would have died Anybody ever have a little kid that runs out into traffic and there's an oncoming car and you see it and you're running as fast as you can and you get there in time or the child stops in time and you know that could have turned out really different, right? Right? See, in a moment like that, what are you feeling? Well, you're feeling great joy, right? But also great fear. And I wonder... If the new heaven and the new earth might be like that, we see God in his glory and maybe for the first time we really understand deep within our souls that he is holy and he is so holy, far beyond what we've ever imagined today in this world and then we see how holy we were not, that we're not holy, and yet we remember that Jesus' blood has covered us. Will we talk about that in heaven? Will we say to each other, do you see, do you realize how close we were? Do you know how dangerous that was? Thank God for Jesus. We're saved from the wrath of God. Maybe you're thinking right now, well, how does that relate to hope and suffering you've been telling us about, Mike? Well, Think about it like this. I've already told you a couple times Romans 5 is kind of a a little bit of a preview to Romans 8. I, I told you last week Romans 5 is like the altamont. Romans 8 like the Sierras. You know, it gets even more amazing when you get to Romans 8. Well, let me just give you a little taste. Romans 8, 32 says this, and keep this in mind, Paul, says, He who did not spare his son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if Jesus, God through Jesus, has saved you from that kind of wrath, will not this God who loves you like this take care of you in the future? That's his point. This word reconciliation means God has brought us near. We were once God enemies, but now we are his friends. We're going to see also in Romans 8 that we're co-heirs with Christ. And then you get to verse 10. Paul's just expanding on this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And it's like this description of the love of god is building and building it's reaching a crescendo here in, in verse 10 where paul connects our status as god's enemies to our reconciliation to god through the death of his son jesus he gets to the full picture here we're weak we're ungodly and now he he says we're enemies we're god's enemies Again, in Romans 8, verse 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it it cannot. And so God set his love on us and demonstrated that love through the death of his son, even while we were still his enemies. In other words, God saved and God reconciled his enemies to himself. Reconciliation means we have relationship that relationship's been restored it means we're friends with god those who have put their faith in his son we're god's friends we're part of god's family and don't miss the word now you see it there paul is telling us that's not just something out in the future something we wait for in eternity it, it is a present reality now we are reconciled now Now God is more like our father than our judge. Now we are co-heirs with Christ. Now we are indwelt with the spirit. These are all going to be in Romans 8. You should go read it ahead of time. It's really good, I promise you. Now we are invited to pray to him with confidence. Now we know that when we pray, he listens to our prayers. He hears our prayers. All of these things and so much more are because we know this love like no other this love that rescues sinners this love that 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 reconciles sinners to god he loves us he knows us he's forgiven us he welcomes us he's made us his friends even though we were his enemies and let me point out this place that is so deep this place That is a struggle for some of you, and some of you have never told anybody about this, but many of you struggle with this, this, and it is the assurance of your salvation. Again, what he's talking about here is kind of a warm-up for Romans 8, Romans 8, 28 to 39 specifically. But Paul is giving us assurance of our salvation here. He's looking toward the future and he's telling believers that they can have confidence in their future deliverance because of God's love, this love like no other. Why? Because this confidence is based not on our ability to keep obeying God, not on our ability to stay faithful. It is based on God's power to love us. Do you understand that? See, some of you are struggling with the assurance of your salvation because somehow, someway, you come to this place where you think it's about you staying faithful and you've forgotten. No, it's about God's power that enables you, strengthens you to stay faithful. And Paul is telling us that here. And again, I keep bringing this up because it's such a real issue. And and especially in this context of suffering that Paul's talking about, suffering can cause us to question if what we believe is real or sometimes to ask ourselves if we're going to keep believing. That's a pretty normal question people have when they're deeply hurting. And people who are hurting and read Paul's words and understand them will be comforted enormously because they point us back. To the reality of what God has done for us. They anchor our hope in the love of God, and that love is demonstrated in the reconciliation of God. So let me just put it this way whenever you doubt God's love for you, you need to read Romans 5. Whenever you are fearing for your future, you need to read Romans 5 and you need to rehearse in your heart and your mind the beauty of God's love, sending His Son for His enemies. If you look at your suffering and your pain and you ask, how in the world can anything good come out of this? Go back to Romans 5 and look at the cross and see how much good came out of that horrible but ultimately good day when God sent his son. See, we need to learn to live on the love of God expressed to us in reconciliation. And then we need to apply that to our world. This is also good news. For those of you, and I alluded to this a few moments ago, who blew it last week. I think every Sunday there are people who come to church and they're looking at what has just happened in their life the last few days. And nobody may know but you and God what you did. But you're sitting here today and you're wondering, did I go too far this time? Did I sin in this area of my life where God has told me not to do it and I keep doing it and I keep failing and I keep struggling. I don't want to do it, but I keep doing it. I keep giving into it. And is there a limit to the love of God? And is he going to say that's your last chance? What Paul is telling us here is of great comfort if that's what you're feeling right now. Whenever you fail, Whenever you fall, you can know, because of what Paul says here, that God is not going to give up on his plan to restore you. And you know why? You belong to Jesus. He died for you. He paid for your life. You're his. He is not going to let you go. He is going to keep you. He's going to guard you. He's going to preserve you all the way to the end of your life. That was a really good place to say amen, Southwinds. I'll give you some more chances later, okay? So the question really that's being asked here is, how do I live then? And, and also in that, how do I die in light of these truths? I was reminded this week, and you, you've been around here very long, you know that I like to bring stuff up from church history because I'm kind of into that stuff. And there's this really, really wonderful um, document written in 1563. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism, and the traditions that most of us are in, we probably haven't encountered it. Maybe some of you have, uh, but it is a wonderful document. It was a a catechism, a document designed to teach children the truths of God's Word. And and back in 2017, when Dan and I were uh, touring through parts of Germany, we actually uh, were able to visit the church. It's called the Church of the Holy Spirit, uh, where this was first taught And the Heidelberg Catechism has this wonderful first question and answer that relates to what we are talking about today. I just want to share it with you. Here's the question, and it's going to be on the screen. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And here's the answer, that I am not my own. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's what kids back in 1563 were learning. And because you're all grown-ups here, I expect you'll have that memorized by tomorrow, okay? So get to work. Um, But those are just beautiful words that express the truth that god loves us and he will keep on loving us why because he has rescued us because he has reconciled us therefore today we have hope we have hope no matter what sometimes um, i watch movies and sometimes i watch theologically profound movies like um, Liam Neeson's movie, Taken. If you've seen the movie, you remember Liam Neeson plays the role of a father whose daughter uh, travels to Paris with a friend, and he doesn't want her to go because he thinks it's too dangerous, but his ex-wife, her mom, convinces him to let her go. And, he, you know, if you saw the movie, you're, still, you're seeing this in your mind. As soon as she gets there, she, he calls... Uh, her uh, from uh, at, at, at an apartment. And while they're on the phone, do you remember this? Intruders enter the apartment and they abduct your friend. And he says to her, Kim, they're going to take you. And you see this abduction take place. And then the guy who abducts her and her friend gets on the phone with Liam Neeson. Now, here's what we know about Liam Neeson he has a very particular set of skills (laughs) that he has developed over a long period of time that, you remember this, make him a nightmare for people like this man. And this whole movie, it's just all about him going to get his daughter. Like he flies to Paris and... And he has um, some altercations with various people, right? Uh, We'll just keep this family friendly. And at the end of the movie, he rescues her, and he's standing there, and she looks at him, and she says to him, you came for me. And she just melts in his arms, right? And he says, I told you I would, as she's just like melting in his arms. And, you know, this movie would have been a lot different if while she was being taken, he says to her, I told you this was going to happen. I told you not to go to Paris. You know where I live. When you get back, I'll see you then. Just do whatever you got to do. Like that would have been a different movie, you know, so the rest of the movie is her trying to overcome her abductors and traffickers. She finally breaks free and goes into disguise, and she gets a job in a little Parisian bakery trying to earn a little bit of money, you know, so she can buy a ticket to get back home. She finally saves up enough money, and she flies back. She lands, and she calls the Uber so the Uber can take her, in. and she knocks on the door, and she's just bedraggled and all of that, and she says when the door opens, I made it. Totally different movie. Like, I, I would have never watched that movie. And she's not going to melt into his arms, is she? She's not going to walk through that front door and just receive that that love in that case. Do you see what we're talking about here? Do you see this love that's like no other? It is the gospel. It's the gospel that Paul has been teaching us From the very first verse of this amazing letter, he's talking about this God who pursues and rescues sinners, this God who in grace reconciles sinners into a personal relationship, this God who does not say to sinners, you got yourself into this mess, you get yourself out of this mess. He loves us while we're in our sin. And he comes for us and he sacrifices for us and he overcomes our enemies Sin and Satan at death at great cost to himself, and that's what causes us to melt in his arms. He's a God who rescues, he's a God who reconciled, who's a God who loves you. Do you love him? And lastly, very quickly, this love, like no other, is a love that creates exaltation. Verse 11 says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And this final aspect of God's love Paul writes about begins with this phrase, more than that. And we saw this phrase last week in verse 3 where it introduced this idea of rejoicing in our suffering Uh, you know, Paul was saying on top of all these good things, we can rejoice in our suffering. And what I think we see by it occurring in verse 11 is, is this indication that verse 11 is the conclusion to everything Paul has been saying since verse 1 of chapter 5. And so after talking about these wonderful truths related to justification, peace with God, and endurance and suffering, God's love and God's reconciliation, Paul is reminding us, listen, of what all of it is all about and if we get it if we understand what he's talking about we're just going to be left marveling about the beauty of God he's talking about reconciliation he's talking about rejoicing but I want you to notice that he's telling us here reconciliation leads to rejoicing you might put it this way the work of God always leads to the worship of God See, ultimately, and this is what some of us have never considered, salvation is not mainly about the salvation of sinners. Salvation is mainly, ultimately, about the adoration of God. Like redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness, restoration of sinners, all these things. It's just the platform on which God can be lifted high and which God can be magnified. That's what it's ultimately all about. Jesus, he's the means by which we are saved, and he's the means by which God is praised. That's what Paul's saying when he says we also rejoice in God. Again, uh, if you have the NASB, uh, it's translated boast, so we boast in God, or uh, excuse me, that's the NIV. The NASB is exult. And all of these words, uh, rejoice, boast, exult, they all fit the meaning of the word, but I think I like the word exult best, because this word means to rejoice exceedingly or triumphantly. See, Paul's just talking about more than just being happy here. He, he's talking about rejoicing in God himself. And here's what you need to understand. This exaltation is where the gospel of God is always intended to lead. It, it leads us when we see it, justification, peace with God, reconciliation, God-loving, helpless, powerless sinners who are his enemies, restoring those people who are marred and broken, going back to all we, we learned in Romans 1 and 2, you know, all of that is leading to this place where when God saves sinners, it leads to people who are saved Praising God and rejoicing in God because they see the beauty of God in the love of God. Say, God justifies sinners so that we can rejoice in Him. And ultimately, what it comes down to is where we started this morning. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. What it comes down to is little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. To exalt in God means you are banking everything, including your eternal destiny on this reality. It it means that in your sufferings and in your doubts, even in your, your failures, it means that you have come to the conclusion, Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. And it means when you come, as we all will one day, to the very last moment of your life, when you cross from this world into the next. Have you thought ever about how you want to die? I'm not talking about like how you die because I know everybody, we all want to die in our sleep, right? That's how we all want to die. Just go to sleep. Don't wake up. That would be the best way. But I'm really talking about when you come to that, that moment of your last breath, have you ever thought about what would the confession of your faith be in that moment? You know, as a pastor for a lot of years, I have been with a number of people as they breathe their last. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, God keeps people all the way to the end. God gives unusual grace to people to know and to feel Jesus loves me. This I know. This I know. So this love being poured out in our weakness, poured out in grace, is this love that is so deep and so rich and so strong that it rescues sinners such that their love for God never dies. And it is not because of their strength and their power. It is all because of God's strength and their power. And they live their lives knowing Jesus loves me. I know this. I know this. They live knowing I'm weak. But he's strong. God shows his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's word, Southman's. It is true and it will always be true. And all of us together hear it and we together confess, Amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Father God, We need today to understand uh, deeply what your word is teaching us, maybe in parts of our souls, Lord, that can't even be reached unless you do it by your spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would apply these truths to our particular circumstances. Lord, to those who are in moments of suffering and pain, that you would just remind them right now how much you love them. Lord, I also want to pray for anyone who's here today who, who needs to take that step from death to life, from being your enemy to being your friend. I, I pray today, Lord, that they would, they would see that all of this is not an accident, that you brought them here for a reason. And maybe today your word has landed on a heart ready to hear and ready to receive and, and ready to believe. And then, Lord... We want to thank you that no matter what comes, our love for you will never die. And we know it's not because of us, but it's because of you. We thank you, Lord, for the hope of that, because life can be very hard and painful. So we cling to you today, believing that if you were the one who did all this, then you are the one who's going to keep us safe all the way to the end. That you love us, Jesus and we know it because the bible tells us we we pray all of these things in jesus name and all god's people say